Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. The Trump years are not the only time American democracy has been threatened. The World War I years, when Woodrow Wilson was president, a Democrat, they were another. That's what Adam Hochschild argues. He's an award-winning author. We've often talked about his books here. They include the classic King Leopold's Ghost. It's about colonialism in the Congo, Spain in Our Hearts, about the Spanish Civil War, and Bury the Chains, about how a small group of people started the movement that ended slavery in the British Empire. We reached him today at home in Berkeley. Adam Hochschild, welcome back. Good to be with you, John. Well, your book is titled American Midnight. For a lot of Americans, that phrase would seem to refer to the Trump years, particularly January 6th. So let's compare and contrast the darkness of the Trump years with the period you deal with, the World War I era, the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. Of course, let's acknowledge at the outset that Wilson did not try to overturn a presidential election. He did not call for an armed mob to attack the Capitol. He won the election both times he ran 1912 to 1916. So it was not that kind of a threat to democracy. But you say Wilson went a lot farther than Trump in his treatment of opponents, his opponents on the left. We remember that Trump supporters chanted at those rallies in 2016, lock her up, referring, of course, to Hillary. What did Wilson do about his opponents? Well, he actually did lock them up on quite a large scale. Between 1917 and 1921, more than 450 Americans were imprisoned by the federal government for a year or more, and a much larger number for shorter periods, and an at least equal number were imprisoned by state governments for a year or more, and larger numbers for shorter periods, solely for things they wrote or said. What set the pattern for this and states passed copycat laws was the Espionage Act, which uh, Wilson pushed through weeks after the United States entered the First World War. And which Let me just I interrupt and say, the Espionage Act rings a bell. Haven't I heard about that in the news in the last month or two? You certainly have, because uh, Donald Trump may get in trouble under it because of those classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. The Espionage Act is still there. It's been considerably amended. But at the time, in 1917, for the next few years, it was extremely stringent, basically allowed the government to put people in jail for things that they said or wrote that were deemed to be unpatriotic at this time that America was at war. And Wilson locked up a number of his opponents the most prominent of whom was Eugene Debs, the uh, at that time four-time socialist candidate for president, who'd won 6% of the popular vote in 1912. 
and who was sent to jail for a very eloquent speech he gave saying that the U.S. Uh, should think twice about entering the First World War. And he was still in jail in November 1920 when he won more than 900,000 votes for president as a convict. So locking up uh, Debs in 1919 would be sort of like, what, locking up Bernie Sanders today. Is that a reasonable parallel? That's right. I think it is a reasonable parallel. And what exactly was the crime, the act that counted as a violation of the Espionage Act? It was a speech that Debs gave in a park in Canton, Ohio, which said that the people have never had a say in declaring war. They declare war and they send you to war. And Debs had just come from visiting uh, three conscientious objectors who were in the county jail uh, right across from this park. And he spoke very eloquently uh, of them. And he was immediately put on trial. The federal judge in his trial was a former law partner of the Secretary of War. So there was very <laughs> little doubt about which way this verdict was going to go. And it was at that trial that Debs made his very eloquent uh, speech, which ends, you know, while there is a working class, I am of it. While there is a man in prison, I am not free. And he was sentenced to 10 years. And uh, he served more than three of them. And then finally, by that time, the Red Scare had relented. Warren Harding was president. And Harding released him from jail. Uh, invited him to visit in Washington on his way home from prison. And as he came out of the White House after that visit, Debs said to reporters, I've run for the White House five times, but this is the first time I've ever gotten here. <laughs> you know, Warren Harding, we are taught that uh, Warren Harding was one of our worst presidents. But what was it he said about Debs? You quote an amazing line in your book that I'd never seen before. He said, off the record, Debs was right about the war. We never should have gotten involved in it. And that was something that by 1920 or 21, a lot of people all over the world had come to, to, to feel because, of course, the First World War started first in Europe in 1914, then in, in the U.S. We joined in 1917 with an enormous burst of patriotism and Everybody on both sides was convinced they were fighting for national survival and noble goals and to make the world safe for democracy and so forth. But by the time it was over, they realized the war was a catastrophe that had remade the world for the worse in every conceivable way. So we've said that Wilson exceeded Donald Trump by jailing hundreds of his opponents, including the presidential candidate of the Socialist Party, for things they said or wrote. And what about newspapers or magazines that criticized Wilson? During this time, starting with the Espionage Act, which went into effect weeks after the U.S. declared war in uh, April 1917, roughly 75 newspapers and magazines were forced out of business because the Espionage Act gave the Postmaster General, who was a truly terrible man, Albert Burleson of Texas, the power to declare a publication unmailable. And at that time, you know, daily newspapers, the mainstream daily press, you know, was sold on street corners and distributed by newspaper carriers. 
They were not affected by this, but for weeklies, monthlies, journals of opinion, and most of the country's foreign language press, it had to go through the mail. There was no other means of transmission. And, you know, Burleson, in addition to forcing 75 publications to close, banned hundreds of specific, specific issues uh, of additional ones. Trump campaigned on an anti-immigrant platform promising to keep out immigrants from Mexico and to deny admission to the United States of Muslim uh, immigrants. How did Wilson compare with that? Well, when you roll back the clock a century, you see in this country, uh, there has always been really in the United States, a struggle going on between people whose ancestors got here a bit earlier and people who are coming later. And today it's you know, between people whose ancestors got here, you know, two or three generations ago, and newcomers who are, of course, more likely to be from Latin America. Uh, back then, there was no immigration to speak of from Latin America, but there were an awful lot of new people arriving from Southern and Eastern Europe, primarily Jews, Poles, and Italians. And the people who'd been here for a couple of generations were almost entirely of Anglo-Saxon stock, like Wilson himself. And in their eyes, Jews, Poles, and Italians had not yet, so to speak, become white. So all of their anti-immigration fervor was concentrated on these newcomers from Southern and Eastern Europe. And it culminated in 1924 with the immigration bill it was passed then that essentially slammed the door on all new immigrants, uh, reduced the, the inflow to tiny numbers. And that's what kept Holocaust refugees out of the United States. Deportation of undesirable immigrants had become a political issue in the 1920 election. What was the debate among the Democrats and the Republicans over deportation? Well, the interesting thing is that right up to the very last minute, to the nominating conventions, the leading Republican candidate, General Leonard Wood, a big blood and thunder general, and the leading Democratic candidate, A. Mitchell Palmer, who was Wilson's attorney general, were trying to outdo each other in their promises to deport troublemakers from the U.S. Because, you know, even though it was Palmer's Justice Department that was arresting people literally by the thousands, he was looking for people to deport, that is, you know, troublemakers, radicals of all kinds, who had not yet become American citizens. That's what gave the government the power to deport them. But, but his crusade fell flat. And I think in a way, it denied both of them the nomination, Palmer as a Democrat and Wood as a Republican. What happened was this. Palmer so much believed his own alarmist warnings that he was predicting as he was running for president in early 1920, all through that spring, that on May Day of 1920, the International Workers' Holiday, there would be a nationwide communist uprising. Did all that happen? No way. All <laughs> around the country, everybody prepared for it. New York City, they called in all three shifts of the police force. One shift was on the streets. The other two were waiting in station houses. Everywhere the National Guard was put on alert, J.P. Morgan hired extra guards, they put extra security personnel at railway stations and ferry terminals, and the whole country was paused, you know, headline after headline for this uprising. 
and absolutely nothing happened. And that kind of took the steam out of Palmer's presidential campaign. And I, oddly enough, it spilled over to the Republican side. And instead of electing General Wood, which everybody thought was going to happen, they selected Warren Harding as the uh, presidential candidate for the Republicans, who ran famously on the platform of return to normalcy. Let's go back to Wilson for a minute here. You know, when I went to high school, I was taught that Wilson was a progressive, a reformer, that he wanted to make the world safe for democracy, that he wanted a war to end all wars. And that sounded great to me. And I wrote high papers in high school, I can remember saying, you know, he's one of our greatest presidents for this reason. Is Was this completely false? Well, you know, the funny thing about Wilson is I think he was a tremendously paradoxical, complicated man. You can't quite hate him as an all-out demagogue. There was an idealistic side to him. He was a moderate progressive when he was elected to office and in favor of you know, regulating business a little more, child labor laws, progressive income tax, things like that. But you know, he, there was one way in which he was a tremendous idealist. He had this idea for the League of Nations. The longer the US was in the war, the more having a peace settlement with the League of Nations at the center of it was what he felt uh, we should be pushing for. And in actual fact, I don't think his plan for the League of Nations would have been any more effective at stopping conflict than the UN has been since 1945. But you still can't deny that it's better for countries to sit down around a table and talk than to fight. And in a way, this aspect of his character almost literally killed him because when he was in very ill health, he set off on a long speaking tour around the United States in the summer of 1919, pushing for the U.S. to sign the Versailles Treaty with the League of Nations in it. He was in bad health. Speaking in those days meant shouting, because if you were reaching 10,000 people in an auditorium or stadium or something, there were no public address systems then. And it was during that trip that he suffered the first of two almost fatal strokes. Uh, the second came a week later when he was back at the White House that really knocked him out of commission for most of the last year and a half of his presidency. So that was his idealistic side, impractical, but in some ways admirable. At the same time, he presided over the greatest assault on civil liberties in the United States since the South rolled back Reconstruction after the Civil War. There's one other aspect of this in your book that we need to underline here, the idea of making the world safe for democracy. What did this mean in practice for Wilson's foreign policy, say in the Philippines or in Haiti? It meant nothing in practice because what he had in mind in saying that was basically, let's break up the old Austro-Hungarian empire, where in fact there were a lot of ethnic groups, uh, many of whose members wanted autonomy or independence. Let's carve out Poland from uh, Austria-Hungary, Russia, and, and, and Germany. But democracy certainly did not apply to American colonies uh, like the Philippines or to British colonies like Ireland at the time, Egypt, India. 
And war opponents like uh, Robert La Follette, senator from Wisconsin, said, hey, if we're fighting to make the world safe for democracy, why not self-determination for Ireland, for Egypt, for India? You have a new piece at thenation.com, originally at Tom Dispatch. It's titled, What You Don't Have and Why. And you open with a story not about Woodrow Wilson or, or Gene Debs, but about you in Denmark recently. Yeah, what happened was this. Uh, my wife and I were visiting Denmark. I had an infection that I knew would require an antibiotic. I went to the hospital. The doctor took a look at my hand where the infection was, and he said, yes, you do need an antibiotic. Without getting out of his chair, he turned around, opened a cabinet behind him, gave me a bottle of pills, said, uh, take one of the, take two of these every day for 10 days and you'll be okay. And then we chatted for a moment. And then I said, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to leave now. And where do I go to pay? And he said, we have no facilities for that. <laughs> and that phrase just has echoed in my mind every time. All of us living in this country, even if we're lucky enough to have good medical insurance, you know all the back and forth with people in doctor's offices and insurance companies. Is this covered? Is that covered? And so forth. And the key thing is alone. Uh, among the highly industrialized nations, we don't have comprehensive universal health care for everybody, and we should. And actually, in that article, I cite the case of Costa Rica, where they have a per capita income one-sixth of that of the United States, and Costa Ricans live on the average two years longer than we do, longer life wow. expectancy. Wow. Because they've got a good national health care system. Now, why don't we have a good national health care system? I think it has to do with the fact that in countries that do, it was often either installed by the Socialist Party in that country, such as the Labour Party in Britain, which uh, you know set up their national health service after World War II, or it was installed because more mainstream parties were trying to steal a march on the socialists. And, and that's what happened in Germany, in fact, and get some system like this into place so that the socialists couldn't do it if they came to power and claim credit for it. But one of the things that happened in this 1917 to 21 period is that the socialist party was ruthlessly crushed in this country. Now, they never would have been as strong a force as they've been in many European countries, but they still were a real power in American politics. 6% of the presidential vote in 1912, more than a thousand elected socialist officials around the country, members of state legislatures, city councils, and so forth. And when this repression happened, starting in 1917, uh, socialists of all kinds were among the prime targets, not just Debs, but many other party officials as well. There were enough of them behind bars that had they all been in the same uh, prison, they could have had a nice little party convention there. <laughs> and the the period left that party crushed. And, you know, these were the sorts of people who at that time talked about doing things like having a national health care system having old age pensions, which finally came into effect with Social Security, but not for 25 years later. Adam Hochschild, his new book is American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace in Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. 
And he wrote a related piece about the American socialism that might have been for the nation. You can read it at thenation.com. Adam, thanks for talking with us today and thanks for this book. Well, it's always a pleasure, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thank you.